Just one scripture to turn to this evening, John 21 and verse 22. John 21 and 22. Jesus saith unto him, If I will tarry, sorry, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is it to thee? Follow thou me. And I want to take the title of my message from that verse of scripture, Follow thou me. Here we are again. Here they were again on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Israel's largest freshwater lake. The scene had a sense of deja vu for Peter. It was at this very same place some three and a half years beforehand that he had heard and obeyed the call, follow me. That day had also followed an unsuccessful night of fishing with James and John. Exhausted, they had been sitting on the shore cleaning their nets when they noticed a large group of people coming their way. Jesus was heading straight for them with the, with the crowd flowing, uh, following close behind. The crowd followed because they'd heard and seen the miracles that Jesus had begun to do. He had just started his ministry and was yet to recruit his disciples. On that day, he would begin to choose them and he knew exactly where to start. Jesus approached the fishermen and asked, to sit in Simon Peter's boat, to put a little distance between himself and the multitude. And Peter agreed and Jesus got in and Peter thrust the boat out a little from the shore and got into the boat with Jesus. It was from Simon Peter's boat that Jesus addressed that crowd that day. Peter busied himself with work or maybe he sat and listened But he heard every word that Jesus spoke that day. And when Jesus had finished with the crowd, he turns to Peter and instructs him to launch out into the deep and let down your your nets for a draft. And although they were weary from a futile night of fishing, Peter, James and John obeyed and let the net down. And to their astonishment, they enclosed a great multitude of fish, so much so that their net broke. The thought just came to me that it was like rent for the, for the boat, you know. Thanks for the boat, Peter. But then, and Peter, when he saw the fish, immediately fell at Jesus' feet and repented. He understood in that very moment that Jesus was no ordinary man. And it was here that Peter, James and John received their call to become disciples of Jesus Christ. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, three and a half years later, Jesus comes looking for them again, knowing exactly where he would find them. He had not long resurrected from the dead, and just as he told them he would, and he appeared to them several times already. He knew they were confused, disappointed, and frightened. Three and a half years ago, they'd left everything to follow him, and they had their ideas as to where it all would lead. They walked up and down Israel together. He had shown them how to fish for men. The miracles he performed were were not for self-recognition, but an act of mercy and compassion upon those in need. He had shown them how to love, how to forgive, 
how to respond to rejection, injustice, and betrayal. He taught them about priorities and gave them principles for living through parables and in his life example. His responses to adverse treatment always left them scratching their heads. And what happened at Calvary was no different. They had seen him arrested. Peter had witnessed his trial and watched as he was falsely accused and sentenced to death. Jesus knew that they would not immediately comprehend nor reconcile the last three and a half years with the recent events at Calvary. He knew it all come together once they received his spirit. They had seen the miracles he performed. They witnessed the authority in which he spoke and the wisdom he displayed. Surely he was the Messiah, the saviour they had all been waiting for. They had followed him thinking they were chosen for powerful positions in his kingdom that he would establish when he overthrew through Rome. But that's not what happened. Everything they expected had been pulled out from beneath them. Not sure about what to do next, they went back to what they knew. They went back to the beginning, back to what was familiar, back to what they understood. This time they were out on the water when Jesus calls to them from the beach. Children, have you any meat? He already knew the answer. They had experienced a frustrating night of empty nets. So he instructs them, cast the net on the right side of the ship and you shall find. And they obeyed. And what do you know? Their nets were filled so that they were not able to draw it in for the multitude of fish. It was John who recognized it was the Lord and said to Peter, it's Jesus. Peter puts on his coat and jumps in the water and makes his way to Jesus where he was waiting with breakfast. And it was at this breakfast meeting that Jesus reaffirmed Peter's original call and promoted him to apostle. You followed me and now you are to lead. You were my student, now I require you to teach. Demonstrate what you have observed and learned of me. Imitate how I live. Follow the blueprint given to you. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Jesus was handing the responsibility of establishing the church, his bride, over to his disciples. They would continue what he had begun. The cornerstone had been laid and he was calling them to align themselves with it and to build upon it. This was not the end of the work that Jesus had come to do, but the beginning. He had established it and was giving them the blueprint to follow and continue what he started. He would equip them and empower them to do what he had called them to do. Jesus also, re also reveals to Peter the fashion in which he would die. Yes, Peter, you will truly follow me to death, just as you declared so adamantly only a few days before. And then Jesus looks at Peter and repeats the original call, follow me. Perhaps Peter attempted to interrupt the intensity of that moment by turning his attention to John. What about him? To which Jesus simply answers, that's none of your business. Follow thou me. Don't worry about what the others are doing, Peter. You keep your eyes on me. You do what I've called you to do. You walk where I lead you. 
follow. You follow me. The act of following requires being led. To follow is to go or come after someone or something. It is to act to an instruction and to imitate the leader. When you walk after something, you are following. To follow is also to observe and monitor someone or something. We do this when we follow people on social media. We observe and monitor the things they post. A follower checks their feed frequently to see if there have been any changes, hoping to be updated by an event that has taken place in the life of one of the one that they themselves are observing or, fo- or monitoring. When one follows a sports team, they observe and monitor the team's progress throughout the season. They watch or monitor their games and their scores. They take notes of which players are injured and what, team, what the team's status is on the ladder and who the new players are. They know the name of the coach, how long he's been in the job, all the players' names, their numbers, what positions they happen to play. They observe and monitor all significant games and the insignificant ones. They listen to commentaries and interviews and watch the replays. The people may even own, these people may even own the team colours because they want everyone to know who it is that they follow. They seek to be identified and associated with that team. The disciples were led of Jesus. They not only followed him by observing his actions and monitoring his responses, but they also obeyed his instructions. He gave them authority and sent them out to minister. He sent them to get food while he waited at a well in Samaria. He went to the other side of the lake. He sent them to the other side of the lake while he went to pray. He sent them to fish so that they could pay their taxes. They went where he went and where he sent them. They allowed themselves to be led by him. They observed and monitored how he lived and how he died. They literally walked after him. They followed him. And when they were filled with his spirit, they had the power to imitate his example and follow in his footsteps even to the death. They were followers of Christ. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and instructed them in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. To paraphrase Paul's instructions, You have monitored and observed my life up until now, and how I live to follow after and imitate Christ. Now you follow me. You do as I do. The pattern that Jesus established was one of following the leader. Jesus being the ultimate leader. The disciples followed Jesus and then Jesus instructed them to go and make disciples. Go and make followers and teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded them, commanded you. What I taught you, what I showed you, you teach and show others. Jesus prayed for those who would believe on him through the disciples' words in John 17 and 20. The entire New Testament is a record of the disciples' words. Written by various authors, all followers of Christ, Matthew, John and Peter were of the original 12. Paul was called to be an apostle at his conversion some years after the ascension. And the books of Jude and James, Mark and Luke were all written by followers or disciples of Peter 
and or of Paul. Paul was confident in the pattern that Jesus had established. After his conversion and crash course with Jesus in the desert of Arabia, he went to Jerusalem and made himself known and accountable to those who had walked with Jesus in the flesh. With their blessing, Paul continued to minister and live according to God's will. He knew who he was following, so he could state with full assurance, follow me. Our lives are constantly being observed and monitored by those who interact with us as we go about our business every day. They don't follow us literally, but they take note of us. And just as we take note of others, the Bible tells us that we are letters seen and read by all those around us. I imagine that I'm not the only one to notice people's characteristics and behaviours and give them nicknames to identify them because I don't know their real name. These people have distinctive qualities and that's what they're usually known for. For example, when I was going to the gym at 4 o'clock in the morning, there were a couple others that would join me and one was the toll guy because he drove a toll vehicle. And then... There's the dread lady at the shops who has dreads down past her knees. She's the dread lady. And then there's the grumpy checkout chick. Sister Nat knows exactly who I'm speaking about. And then there's the happy checkout chick and Sister Nat knows exactly the one I'm talking about because we shop at the same Woolworths. We are all known by our identifying qualities. They are certain behaviours and characteristics that are attributed to us, whether we attribute them to ourselves or that others attribute to us. Our actions, our behaviours and our lifestyle act as the team colours that we reveal, that we wear to reveal to those around us who we are following. Whose team are we on? Who do we want to be identified with? Who are we being led by? And who we want to be associated with. Who is it that people see when you do life in front of them? Do they see Jesus? Who are you asking those around you to follow when they see how you live? Naomi found herself in the land of Moab. It was only meant to be for a short time. Just until things got better in Bethlehem, Judah. There was a famine in the land. And Limelech, her husband decided that it would be best for the family to go and stay in Moab for a while. There was plenty of food there. I imagine Naomi was not in favour of the idea. God had given them the land they lived in and he would provide for the faithful. The time of famine would pass and God would visit them again. Her trust was in God and her heart was in Bethlehem, Judah. They had lived in the house of bread. And although the bread was scarce at that moment, there would be bread again. They just had to wait on God. However, the decision had been made, so they packed a few things and went to sojourn in Moab. The intention was a short stay, not a permanent move. Moab was to be temporary until things got better in Bethlehem, Judah. But weeks turned into months and months turned into years. We do not know how long they were in Moab before Elimelech died. And as a widow, Naomi was in the care of her sons and it would seem they had no intention of moving back to Bethlehem, Judah. 
they had established themselves in Moab. And after the death of their, their father, they married women from Moab. For all the years they were in Moab, Naomi refused to settle there. She did not embrace her new home nor assimilate with the culture. She was an Israelite and she lived a life that associated and identified her as such. She lived as a follower of the Lord God of Israel in a strange land and this had an impact on her daughters-in-law and influenced them greatly. Circumstances had forced her to live in Moab. It was not the option she preferred, but she made the best of this situation and hung on to God and his word. She taught her, daughter, her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, about the Lord God of Israel. She no doubt re-encountered the miracles that he had done for her people to them regularly. They heard the story of deliverance from Egypt as they remembered Passover. They heard the story, stories of the miraculous provision and protection. Both Ruth and Orpah observed and monitored Naomi's faith through her everyday interactions with people, in the marketplace, in the streets, at the well and wherever she went. They heard her declare her faith daily in the morning and in the evening with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. They observed and monitored her reactions when people weren't so pleasant to her. They observed the way she mourned for her husband and the relationship with her sons. Day in and day out, they witnessed the alignment of her walk with her talk. They admired her and desired to be like her. And whether Naomi realised it or not, her daughters-in-law followed her. She was not a religious woman keeping rituals to satisfy a specific dogma, but she demonstrated her faith in her everyday life. Her lifestyle was one of worship and love for God. The people of Moab knew who she followed. When her sons died, Naomi was grief-stricken. The Lord had taken her husband and now both her sons as well. In her grief, she felt as if the Lord had forsaken her for staying too long in Moab. She knew she must return to Bethlehem, Judah. The law of Moses had made provision for widows without family to care for them. The law would provide for her. But what about her daughters-in-law? They were Moabitesses. Knowing the history of animosity between Moab and Israel, Naomi sent her daughters-in-law back to their mother's house. They had no reason to stay with her, nor to follow her back to Judah. She did not have the means to provide for them, and it only made sense that she must return to her people and that they would return to theirs. At first, they insisted on following her, and together they began the journey back to Judah. Although Naomi would have been happy for their companionship, she worried there was no future for them in Israel. She counted on her people to take pity on her for the loss of her husband and her sons. However, they would not be too kind. They would, be not, they would not be so kind to these Moabite women who accompanied her. Naomi stopped and began once again to reason with them to return to their mother's house. Orpah took heed to her mother-in-law's words and decided to go back to her family. She kissed, Naomi, she kissed and bid Naomi farewell and returned to her people. Ruth, on the other hand, refused to be swayed. She clave unto Naomi. 
Ruth loved Naomi and the life she had found through this woman who had become much more to her than just her husband's mother. Naomi had become Ruth's connection to the almighty God of Israel and to leave Naomi would be to turn her back on him. Naomi did not ask Ruth to follow her. In fact, she did the opposite. She sent her back to where she thought she belonged. But Naomi didn't know what but what sorry. But what Naomi didn't know was that God had been whispering to Ruth, "Follow thou me." And Ruth had accepted the invitation, knowing she had to leave all she knew to follow him. Ruth 1:16 and 17. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if, I, if aught but death part thee and me. As a mobile woman, Ruth was not entitled to the covenant relationship. God had provided for the children of Israel. However, Ruth understood that to follow Naomi would, to be, would be to follow Naomi's God. Ruth knew she was not entitled to the same privileges as the Israelites when it came to worship, but by caring for her mother-in-law, she had access to the God she had come to love and know by Naomi's example. She had made up her mind that come what may, she would stay connected to the Lord God through Naomi and follow him even if it was from a distance. Naomi didn't realise the impact she had on Ruth until the time she thought they would have to part. Her life revealed the identity of the one she followed. She was an Israelite. She had remained faithful even though she had lived in a toxic environment. She believed her God would one day bring her home where she belonged to the place he had prepared for his people. She exemplified a life that associated her and associated associated her with and and publicised who she followed. And as a result, the seed of faith was planted in Ruth's life. If Naomi had known God's plan for Ruth, instead of sending her home, she would have encouraged her with confidence. Follow thou me. When Abraham heard God call, follow me, he willingly accepted the terms and conditions of the invitation. He was willing to leave behind all that was familiar to him, his country, to become a nomad in a strange country. He departed from those he was associated with, his kindred, to make a new connection as the friend of God. He willingly left behind his familiar familiar identity, his father's house, to take on a new identity that God had prepared for him. Romans 4 and 20 tells us that Abraham did not stagger at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith. God promised, that he would be, God promised Abraham that he would become the father of many nations. And even though he was old and childless, he was fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able to perform. For 100 years, he walked up and down the land God promised would belong to his descendants. Abraham's life directed those that observed and monitored him to the invisible God he followed. Everyone that got to know Abraham knew that God was with him in all that he did. 
Abraham became a, began a journey not knowing where he would go or where he would end up. All he knew was that God would show him the way. Hebrews 11 and 10 tells us that he, Abraham, looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. His obedient faithfulness to the voice of God was counted to him for righteousness. So much so that even today, Abraham's life is recorded in the scriptures to appeal to us to imitate his faith. Abraham calls to us even now, you, follow me. Trust and obey the word of God to be recognized by God as righteous. Abraham challenges us, follow thou me. Our life is a journey with many places, phases, situations and circumstances entwined with the others around us on their own journey. The direction we travel is affected by our decisions and the way we do life. And can even impact, it influences and even impacts those around us. We must consider with whom we are associated with and whom we desire to be identified with. These factors will determine our direction. How we live demonstrates who we are following. How we live is an invitation to others to follow us. But where are we leading them? An expedition to Mount Everest requires months of physical preparation and weeks of acclimatization for climbers to get used to low oxygen levels at high altitudes. Preparations are required no matter how far the climber wishes to go. Many desire to reach the summit and others are content to reach the base of the mountain known as base camp. However, one cannot climb Mount Everest alone. Whether they go halfway up or all the way up, they require a guide. No one has ever reached the summit of Mount Everest without one. The Sherpa are indigenous people to the Himalayan region. They are mountain people, which means their bodies are naturally accustomed to the higher altitudes and freezing weather. They are hired to guide those who wish to visit Mount Everest because of their knowledge of the mountain and its terrain. They are skilled mountain climbers, navigators and trackers. National Geographic entitled an article about them as the invisible men of Everest as they do not receive the accolades when the summit is successful. Sherpa guides understand the conditions of the mountain and how quickly these conditions can change. They know the seasons of the mountain and when it's best to climb to reach the summit safely. They plan the route, they prepare the way, they set up hold ropes and carry the gear required for a successful climb. The Sherpa guides lead the way. They know the direction that will lead their followers to the desired destination. A Sherpa can confidently say, follow thou me. From the base of Mount Everest, there are four camps before reaching the summit. Each camp spaced a little higher up the mountain than the other with many dangers and risks in between. Avalanches and falls account for most of the deaths that occur on Mount Everest. Other causes of death are severe mountain or altitude sickness and exhaustion. The trek begins in a small town called Lukla in northeastern Nepal. Expeditioners fly to this point where they hire Sherpas 
and obtain supplies for the journey under the Sherpa's direction. It often takes two weeks from Lukla to reach the base camp as climbers need to adjust to the higher altitudes. Even at the base camp, which is considered the foot of the mountain, the elevation is high enough to cause serious health complications. Mountaineers typically spend one to two months at the base camp going up and down the mountain so their bodies can get used to the low oxygen environment. It is the Sherpa that makes the call as to whether a mountain climber is ready to make their way to the next camp or whether they must abort the mission and descend because of health difficulties. The mountain climber must trust the experience and the lifestyle of the Sherpa to make hard calls and lead them safely while they are on the mountain. One cannot make an agreement to be led and then disregard instruction and go a different route or press on when they're not ready to cope with the next level. To do so is fatal as the air only gets thinner as they go higher. They must follow the Sherpa guide and obey their every instruction. To climb to the summit, the Sherpa must lead his mountain climbers through Kumba Icefall, which stands between base camp and camp one. The icefall is made up of layers of gigantic ice blocks that are constantly shifting. This creates giant cracks and the climbers use metal ladders to climb over. Many have died in this area when out-of-season warmer weather causes ice rocks to melt and collapse or avalanches occur. However, the most difficult part of the climb to the, to the Everest summit is the camp, the last camp, from the last camp to the top. Between Camp 4 and the summit, it's, it is known as the death zone because the body begins shutting down and is dying for lack of oxygen. The oxygen levels at this altitude are so low that the mountain climbers' judgment can become impaired and they can begin doing strange things like taking off their clothes or talking to imaginary people. The physical and mental exhaustion experienced in the death zone is so overwhelming that climbers are tempted to sit down and rest for a few minutes, but to do so means freezing to death. The Sherpa guide understands that it is now a race against time to reach the summit, enjoy the view, and begin the descent. So to Cassie, if you'd come. The word of God tells us that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for those who have been born again. John 3 describes this experience as being born of water and of spirit. And Peter gives us the, the instructions on how to be born again in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This is the base camp of the journey which leads to heaven. The journey also this journey also requires much preparation and attention to detail and instruction. It is a narrow way with many adjustments taking place at every level requiring more of us. It is essential that we do not walk after our own thinking but that we walk in obedience to the word and in submission to our pastor, the guide, the one that God has placed over us. He is like our Sherpa. To reach the destination that Jesus has prepared for us, we must submit to that authority. We must imitate the pattern established by Jesus, given to the apostles and passed on to us 
through the word of God. There is no other way. Jesus said, follow thou me. And he commissioned the apostles to say, follow thou me. And they commissioned those that came after them, follow thou me. Does our life exemplify the benefits of spiritual authority to our children and younger saints? Our how becomes their example and tells them how it's done. Follow thou me. Does our life exemplify the same importance the apostles placed on fellowship and being part of the body? Follow thou me. Our how becomes the pattern we ask others to imitate. If they were to imitate us, could we determine their behaviour as Christ-like? Where are we leading those who imitate us? To whom are we directing them when we say to them, follow thou me? We live in the death zone. Jesus is coming soon. The enemy of our souls is working overtime to deceive and entrap humanity into an eternity without God. We cannot allow ourselves to be caught off guard by an avalanche of offence or fall into a pit of bitterness. We cannot allow our minds to be weakened by our environment, causing our judgment to become impaired. We must guard against worldly ideologies that seek to destroy us. Their message is being preached through social media, music and entertainment. It may sound good, it may even sound godly, but be warned, but we are warned, be not deceived. 1 Corinthians 6, 6 and 9 tells us that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The problem with deception is that we don't know when we are. Do not look to the left or to the right. Jesus is reminding us as he reminded Peter, follow thou me. One who desires to follow Jesus begins by demonstrating obedience to the word of God. They respond to the leading and convicting power of the Holy Ghost and they have given their pastor the authority to speak into their life. Matthew 7 and 16 tells, them, tells us, you shall know them by their fruits. Our fruits speak louder than our words and reveal who we are followers of. Why don't we stand this evening? We can easily get caught up in ourselves and justify our actions. This is carnal behaviour. When we do this, we allow our, our flesh to lead and in doing so, we lead others away from God and onto a path of unrighteousness and hopelessness. Our fruit reveals who we are, the true followers of, and where we lead those that monitor and observe us. Our speech, our life, our interactions with others, and our priorities inadvertently say, follow thou me. Naomi gave Ruth a future. She did not realise it at the time. She just lived for God in front of Ruth pointing in his direction every day. Abraham showed us how to live a life that follows after God. His life pointed to righteousness, which can only be attained through obedience and trust in God. We must not think for a moment that we are invisible. We are seen and read of those we interact with. We must not think for a moment that our decisions do not impact them. Every era, every area of our life comes together as a billboard that says, follow thou me. 
Who do we demonstrate that we live to follow? Can we confidently declare as the Apostle Paul did, follow thou me as I follow Christ? We are wearing the colours of the team we want to be associated with. We display them for all to see. These are the colours of the team that we are identified with. We are advertising our leader, recruiting our observers to follow us by the life that we lead. When we say, follow thou me, who are we leading them to? If we could just look into our hearts, see our life tonight, in line with the word of God, not through our own eyes, where we can see, oh, we're pretty good. You know, we don't kill anybody and we don't lie and we don't do all those dishonest things. But can we hold up the word of God tonight and see where I lack, Lord? Where do I lack, Lord? Help me to follow you, Jesus. Help me to influence my children. Help me to influence the ones that I work with, the ones that I go to school with. May they know that you are my leader. That when I say to them, follow thou me, they know exactly where I'm going. They know who I follow. They know whose team I'm on. That I'm not following after my own ideas. That I'm not wearing colors that just don't identify with anyone but my own things. My own thinking. I want to be a faithful follower. I want my billboard to point people in the right direction. Why don't you come tonight? Present yourself before the Lord and ask him to search you. What are your characteristics? Are you known by Jesus? Are you known by his love and his kindness and his long-suffering? Or do our fleshly characteristics take over? Do people know us by the things that our flesh does? Hallelujah. Why don't you come this evening? Hallelujah.